0: Welcome to The Loop Podcast, where we are transforming education in plastic surgery since 2020.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Loop Podcast. I'm Brian Dasiri-Tarani, and today we will be going over burn reconstruction and some high-yield pearls for the in-service. This topic also covers critical care, so it's a fairly high-yield area. We will try to highlight key points from previous in-service exams to help out with guiding this review. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel to follow along with helpful illustrations. Today, I'll be joined by Dr. Casey Sheck. Great. Let's fire this up. All right. Let's do it. Let's start with some basic burn pathophysiology.
0: Okay. So you want going to start with the pathophysiology of burn leading to three zones. Those three zones start with the zone of coagulation. This is going to be your point of maximum damage. Uh, and this area is a complete loss, but it's surrounded by a zone of stasis and this is a potentially salvageable zone. When treating burn patients, the aim is to increase perfusion so that you can increase saving this zone. And then you have the zone of hyperemia. This zone is a zone that will recover unless there is severe or prolonged states of hypoperfusion. And it should be remembered that these zones are in three dimensions. So you need to make sure you understand what is deep uh, and the structures that are deep to this. Speaking of depth, Brian, how do we classify burn
1: depth? Good question. Okay, so let's we'll start with the most superficial or superficial burn. That's the first degree burn. You can think of that as a bad sunburn. That includes only the epidermis. There's no scarring as a result of a first degree burn, and usually it's treated with supportive care like lotion or aloe vera. Partial thickness is also known as second degree, and that could be subdivided into superficial partial thickness and deep partial thickness. The superficial partial thickness includes the epidermis and the superficial portion of the dermis or the papillary dermis. This will blister and weep. It will re-epithelialize, and it will lead to some scarring, and it can convert to an even deeper burn if it's not cared for. And that's usually managed with silver dressings and antiseptics. A deep partial thickness is the epidermis and the deeper portion of the dermis, including the follicular and glandular structures that's needed for epithelialization. So these burns will benefit from grafting. Next is a full thickness burn, also known as a third degree burn, and that's through the entire dermis. All adnexal structures are lost. There's no epithelialization that's expected to occur. If you don't treat these surgically, they will heal eventually, but it will heal via contraction. So you'll see a lot of scar contractures and morbidity associated with that. There is such a thing as a fourth degree burn, and that's when it goes beyond the dermis and affecting the underlying muscle and bone. And that's pretty much as bad as it gets. Casey, how do you calculate total body surface area burn?
0: That's actually a great question. Classically, we use the rule of nines. This breaks up the body into zones, uh, giving each zone a value of 9% or a multiple of 9%. For adults, we classically use that the head is 9%, that the anterior torso is going to be 18%, the posterior torso or the back being as well. And then each arm will get 9%. Each leg is 18%. And the general area is 1%. Now, as everyone is different, and sometimes you want to be more precise, as these areas are not clearly demarcated on burns by anatomical zone, you can use your hand, your hand ends up being just about 1%. So every hand coverage is 1%. Brian, to calculate these, do we need to change anything for children?
1: Yeah, actually, pediatrics is a little different because their heads are usually bigger in relation to the rest of their body. Their head is going to be 18% total body surface area, anterior torso 18%, posterior torso 18%, each arm is 9%, and each leg is 14%, as opposed to adults, whereas each leg is 18%. When dealing with pediatric burn patients, it's extremely important to think about child abuse and whether or not the patient sustains child abuse, and also if the patient is at risk for subsequent abuses at home with the same parents or guardian. When you suspect child abuse, you have to really pay attention to the history and see if it fits the physical examination. In terms of physical exam, usually the patient will have a burn with a clear line of demarcation on the extremities without splash marks. It could also be the buttock area. Appropriate care should be rendered, and if the patient's seen in a community hospital, the patient should be still transferred to the higher level of care or burn center without delay, despite the suspicions of child abuse. They can work that up on the way to the other hospital or or at the burn center. Social work and pediatric consultation is warranted to help assess for child abuse and occult injuries like acute or healing long bone fractures, traumatic brain injury from shaken baby syndrome, skeletal survey, ophthalmologic evaluation, and sometimes a non-contrast head CT may be warranted for those more severe injuries. Like I said before, child abuse is an indication for transfer to a burn center. So Casey, what are some other indications to transfer a patient to a burn center?
0: This question pops up all the time on in-services. Some of these indications for burn center referral or transfer are partial thickness burns that are greater than 10%, burns to the face, hands, feet, genitals, or perineum, full thickness burns of any age group, and then chemical, electrical, lightning, inhalation injuries, all of the specialty burns, and then burns in patients with other medical comorbidities or have concomitant trauma or social work issues, like you said, in the pediatric population. So one of the most important things to know in the care of burn patients is how to resuscitate. Let's talk a little bit more about that. To be able to resuscitate appropriately, you need to know what to go for. So when we're resuscitating these burn patients, our go-to is crystalloid. There are studies out there that are positives and negatives for colloid resuscitation. However, crystalloid is the way to go for an acute resuscitation of any burn patient. A lactated ringer is relatively isotonic and it's usually preferred over normal saline, especially in large volume resuscitation. It has a lower concentration of sodium, 130 milliequivalents per liter versus the 154 you will see in normal saline uh, and it also has a slightly higher pH, uh, average pH being around 6.5 instead of the pH of 5 that you get in normal saline. Lactated ringer also has the potential added benefit of buffering metabolized lactate and associated metabolic acidosis. Now that we know what to use, Brian, how do we figure out exactly how much to use?
1: Yeah, so this also comes up quite a bit on all the in-services, GenSurge and plastic. So for major burn, that's constituted as 15% or more. Many people go to the Parkland formula. Parkland formula is four times your weight in kilograms times your total body surface area and percentage times 100 to give you the total fluids in milliliters that should be given in 24 hours. And half of that is given in the first eight hours and the remainder is given in the next 16 hours. Some people use what's called the modified Brook formula, which is basically the same thing as Parkland, except instead of four, you use two. So the formula would be two times kilograms times percentage total body surface area times 100. And that's also given over a 24 hour period with the first half given in the first eight hours. The ultimate goal of any resuscitation, whether you're using Parkland or modified Brook, is to maintain urine output. And in adults, that's 0.5 milliliters per kilogram per hour. And in peds, that's one milliliter per kilogram per hour, at least. Many burn centers nowadays, they start at a parkland or a modified brook rate. And then every hour or so, they titrate the fluids down based on the urine output. That way, they decrease the risk of fluid overload. And since this is such a high-yield topic, I just want to emphasize a key point. A lot of times in the question stem, they'll give you the weight, they'll give you the percentage, and they'll also sneak in how much time has passed and how much fluid was given on the field. And that's a very sneaky way to trip you up. So uh, here's a good example. A 70-kilo guy uh, was evaluated one hour after sustaining a 50% deep partial thickness burn. And paramedics gave him two liters. And they asked, using the Parkland formula, what should be the starting rate for fluid resuscitation? So you're going to start with your Parkland formula. So that's 4 times 70, that's how much he weighs, times 50, which is his total body surface area percent times 100, you calculate that you get 14,000 milliliters over the first 24 hours. Now you give half of that in the first eight hours. So that's seven liters should be given in the first eight hours. But two liters were already given in the field and one hour has elapsed. So you you should adjust for that. That would mean that you give five liters given over seven hours, which comes out to a rate of 714 milliliters per hour as a starting rate you don't adjust for that time and for that amount given, then you would have calculated seven liters in the first eight hours, which would have come out to 875 milliliters. And that's a much rounder number. That's going to be a choice. You're going to want to go to that and you're going to feel like you got the right answer because it's an answer choice, but you could easily get burned that way. So no pun intended. Casey, what are some of the unique characteristics for pediatric resuscitation?
0: Yeah, so the pediatric population, there's a few important points that we want to address, especially for these pediatric burn patients especially in toddlers, because toddlers are particularly susceptible to inadequate fluid resuscitation. And we have to monitor them very closely to make sure that we're maintaining that at least one milligram per kilogram per hour of urine output, like you said before, in children that have large burns, so greater than about 15% total body surface area, weighing less than 20 kilograms and younger than two. So that's greater than 15% less than 20 kilograms and younger than two years old, you should add 5% dextrose to their resuscitation. This is to prevent hypoglycemia. And these children can actually die from this. And the reason this is, is because the patient has, the children have low hepatic glycogen reserve and can quickly deplete this after a major trauma, especially with burns. One of the things you also wanna make sure you're doing is monitoring the patient for under-resuscitation. Hypovolemia in these burn patients is caused by extravasation of plasma into the burn wound. And this is for all patients, not only pediatrics, but this decreased effective circulating volume leads to decreased cardiac output, it leads to decreased peripheral blood flow, and it leads to increased systemic vascular resistance, which sometimes will be a question on the in-service, and then also decreased urine output. So if you're not monitoring the urine output and care is not taken, uh, you can actually inadequately resuscitate these pediatric patients. This leads to hypoperfusion and can lead to ischemic insults. Converting partial thickness burns now to full thickness burns can lead to end organ failure and very quickly to hemodynamic collapse and even death. We always want to make sure we're resuscitating them. But Brian, can you tell me a little bit about one of the major concerns about over-resuscitation in all burn patients, but pediatrics as well?
1: Yeah, that's going to be, a, there's always a risk of abdominal compartment syndrome, and that's defined as an intra-abdominal hypertension of greater than 20 millimeters of mercury associated with new onset organ failure. I'm going to touch on this a little bit, taking it back to my gen days, but abdominal compartment pressure can be predicted with bladder pressures. And anything over 20 millimeters of mercury is concerning for abdominal compartment syndrome. End organ failure can be gleaned by renal failure, as indicated by oliguria, respiratory failure, as indicated by elevated plateau pressures on the ventilator if the patient's intubated. They can actually have liver failure or shock liver, and that's usually indicated by transaminitis, elevated ALT and AST, usually in the thousands range. The treatment, if it's not too late, if it's early, Before end-organ damage, you can consider supportive measures like sedation, paralysis, pain control, all that stuff. But typically, if you're having a high suspicion for abdominal compartment syndrome and they're starting to have end-organ damage, that's already too late, and you have to do a decompressive laparotomy. Let's go on and talk about how to calculate caloric needs in the burn patient. Okay.
0: So uh, this is another one of these equations that you need to know. And this helps calculate the caloric needs for burn patients. So anytime during stress, the body needs more calories to heal. This can be both from surgery, sepsis, trauma, burn, or any combination of these. But in burn, we're going to be utilizing the Curari formula, which is estimating the uh, increased caloric needs based on total body surface area. So this equation is going to be 25 kilocalories per kilogram per day. This is the normal individual. And then you're going to add 40 kilocalories per percentage of total body surface area of the burn per day. And this is going to give you the overall daily caloric needs. So, Brian, do you want to walk us through calculating the caloric needs for a 100 kilogram patient? with a 20% uh, total body surface
1: area burn? Sure. So you would start by calculating their normal caloric expenditure needs, which would be 25 times their weight, which in this case is 100. So that will come out to 2,500 kilocalories. That's his normal diet. But in order to adjust for the burn, you would multiply 40 times 20, and that would give you 800. So you're going to add 800 to the 2,500 and get 3,300 kilocalories. Now let's talk about some other burns, starting with electrical burns. Okay, so electrical burns are a little bit different because the burn is actually
0: sustained from the electrical current going through the body, and it's mostly unseen. The voltage of the electricity is usually what determines the amount of tissue damage in these patients. And while the electricity is coursing through the body, the worst injury is typically seen in areas that have the smallest cross-sectional area, for example, the ankles and the wrists. As you're treating these patients down the line, if you want to evaluate for myonecrosis, the MRI is going to be your choice test. Other specific considerations for electrical burns are cardiac monitoring. It's important to monitor for arrhythmias, as VFib is the most common arrhythmia and can lead to death rather quickly. Other things to watch out for include bowel necrosis, acute renal failure, rhabdo, and cataracts in the future. High voltage electrical burns in the forearm can lead to compartment syndrome. If fasciotomies are not performed quite quickly, this can result in ischemic contractures, starting with the deepest muscles. Since those muscles sustain higher pressures, are against the bone, and are at these pressures for a longer time. This is an in-service favorite where they love to ask what muscle is at risk for contracture, The two deepest muscles that are up against the bones in the forearm are going to be FDP and FPL. Your answer is going to be one of those two, and just depending on what they give you, choose one of those two. Compartment syndrome should be at the top of your differential diagnosis with any signs of nerve compression or perfusion changes in a limb Uh, in a patient that sustains a high voltage electrical burn. Brian, can you tell us a little bit more about compartment syndrome in burn patients?
1: Yeah, this can be actually quite tricky, especially since if a patient comes in with a burn combined with a trauma and the patient's intubated and sedated, it might be challenging to tell if they have a true compartment syndrome or not because you can't really assess for pain, paresthesia, or paralysis. Sometimes skin pallor can be confusing, too, because if they have burn eschar, that can throw you off, too. And as we all know, you can't rely on pulse since that's an extremely late finding. So in order to diagnose that, you you have to have a high sus- index of suspicion given the mechanism of injury and sometimes subtle findings. And edema and firmness might be the only things that you see. So you really have to have a high clinical index of suspicion. Casey, are there any tests that can help make the diagnosis?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh The whole reason that we get compartment syndrome is increased compartment pressures. Now, these pressures can be used as an adjunct to help us treat. However, they shouldn't be used alone in the decision-making process. Typically, compartment pressures of 30 milligrams of mercury or, or above are indicative of compartment syndrome. However, since compartment syndrome is a clinical diagnosis, if a compartment pressure is equivocal uh, or even seems normal, but the suspicion for compartment syndrome is high, you should proceed with fasciotomy to help save the limb. Let's talk a little bit about escarotomy and fasciotomy, the differences between them, when to perform them, and how to go forward with those. So Brian, why don't you walk us through those?
1: Sure. So this can be a little confusing conceptually, and they are two distinct entities. If there's a deep circumferential burn on an extremity, that should be considered for an escarotomy, and that should be done to decompress the extremity to encourage and maintain the microcirculation. This is not the same thing as a fasciotomy. The escarotomy is only through the deep portion of the burn or eschar into the subcutaneous tissue that's compressing the underlying microcirculation. The fasciotomy, on the other hand, is going one plane deeper and incising the investing layer of the fascia over the compartments of the muscle that's decompressing the muscles. So, the best way to think about this is that decompression is a process and it's a spectrum or a continuum. If you're doing an escarotomy, you, you do the area that needs to have the escar incised, you wait, and you determine if you need to go a layer deeper to perform a fasciotomy. The incisions are not always the same. Sometimes it's similar, but it's not the same because the escarotomy is over skin and subcutaneous tissue whereas the fasciotomy is done over the fascial compartments. There's a really good article delineating the anatomy for how to do an escarotomy all over the body and how to access all the fascial compartments in the extremities. So I highly recommend that you take a look and review that article before the in-service because they will usually have a question and the choices will be escarotomy, fasciotomy, or some combination of that or something else. And depending on the clinical status of the patient, you may have to do one or the other or both. Depending on the clinical scenario and the status of the patient, an escharotomy can be emergently done at the bedside. If a patient has deep burns to the anterior chest, for example, and that's precluding the patient from having normal excursion and ventilation, then an escharotomy to the anterior chest should be performed expeditiously. And that's to help for proper ventilation. Casey, do you want to talk a little bit on rhabdomyolysis? Yeah, absolutely. So this can be seen
0: uh, in burn patients, uh, usually electrical burns, but also in thermal burn patients, especially ones that have been found down in a fire. They may have concurrent compartment syndrome, which leads to some of the death of the muscle leading to the rhabdomyolysis. And if an extremity has been pinned down for an extended period of time, this is something you need to think about. Some late signs and symptoms that we always want to watch for, one of them being hyperkalemia leading to peaked T waves on your EKG, and you want to treat that. So the initial treatment for hyperkalemia is going to be transient, but you want to start with calcium to protect the heart. And then you give an amp of dextrose, which is 50 milliliters of D50, uh, and then 10 units of insulin. You give the dextrose first to prevent hypoglycemia, and the insulin actually works to drive potassium from the extracellular space to the intracellular space, temporarily hiding that potassium and allowing time for the kidneys to start working, or if they don't, for dialysis to be initiated. Uh, Some other adjuncts, intravenous mannitol increases renal blood flow, increases the GFR. It actually attracts fluid from the interstitium and helps counterbalance the hypovolemia that a lot of these patients are seeing. It increases urinary flow, which can prevent myoglobin cast obstruction, leading to the kidney failure that you see associated with rhabdo. And then it also functions as a free radical scavenger. Along those lines, allopurinol can also be helpful in reducing the production of uric acid, and it also acts as a free radical scavenger as well. Hypocalcemia, commonly seen in the initial phase of rhabdo. However, it doesn't usually require correction unless one of the signs would be impending seizures. So if you have impending seizures, you'll treat the hypocalcemia. We talked about thermal burns earlier. Uh, We just talked about electrical burns. Brian, let's talk about some of the other burns that we can see.
1: Yeah, a little bit less common, but chemical burns can also lead to similar pathophysiology. Acidic burns lead to coagulation necrosis, while alkali or basic burns result in liquefactive necrosis. First chemical we'll talk about is hydrofluoric acid. It's a very strong acid at very high concentrations. And even though it's an acid, since it's so strong, it can actually cause liquefactive necrosis, which is typically seen in basic or alkali burns. This works by dissociation of the fluoride ions into the subcutaneous tissue, and that's actually what causes the most pain. The fluoride ions combine with local calcium resulting in local hyperkalemia, and that can be dangerous from a cardiac standpoint and also increases further pain. If you have greater than a 5% total body surface area of chemical burn with hydrofluoric acid, you do have that elevated risk of cardiotoxicity and organ damage. The treatment is to copiously irrigate the area with low pressure, but the key is to apply topical calcium gluconate. And the calcium gluconate binds the fluoride ions. This not only helps with the pain relief, but it also helps mitigate the burn effects. One good way to apply this is to, if it's affecting the hands, which is typically seen, you can put the gel in a glove and then have the patient just wear the glove. And that's a reliable dressing and it keeps it in place and keeps it there for a while. This is actually the only burn that's treated with calcium gluconate, so it's easy to remember. Next, case you want to talk about phosphorus or white phosphorus? Yeah, so
0: white phosphorus, you'll find it in fireworks and fertilizers and some pesticides. It's super volatile, and it actually spontaneously ignites when exposed to air. What happens is that during the combustion, phosphoric acid is formed, and that's actually what is causing local injury to tissues. To treat this, you want to immediately debride any visible debris uh, and then copiously irrigate with saline. That's going to be the answer if you, for first treatment, is debride any visible debris and then copiously irrigate with saline for white phosphorus. You also want to monitor for cardiac electrolyte uh, abnormalities. With white phosphorus, you're going to see hypocalcemia and hyperphosphatemia. This can lead to sudden death. And then a separate entity, phenol burns or cresol burns are very rare, but like to be asked on in-service. When you're treating them, the treatment is application of polyethylene glycol. So that's going to be the answer for that.
1: Thank you, Brian and Casey, for an informative review of burn reconstruction. For our audience, this is Greta Davis, one of the co-founders of The Loop podcast. This concludes part one of two for our in-service review burn episodes. Today, we discuss pathophysiology and classification of burns, some important calculations for burn management in adult and pediatric patients, and treatment of various types of burn injuries. Part two of this series will cover carbon monoxide poisoning, frostbite, inhalation injury, burn antimicrobials, dressings, and grafts, and burn excision and long-term sequelae. Until next time, thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Loop.